Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan. And I'm Blue. Platforms and Pitfalls is a game design podcast where we look at five different games every month and how they approach an idea. This month, we are looking at asymmetric multiplayer, focusing on few versus many. So first, let's just define asymmetry for the purpose of this discussion. We're not looking at games where sides could be different, like in Street Fighter or Overwatch, where yes, there is asymmetry possible in the gameplay, but typically the full suite of options is available to both sides. So even though maybe you play Kai versus Ryu, or sorry, Ken versus Ryu, (laughs) (laughs) although I would like Guilty Gear versus Street Fighter, if you play Ken versus Ryu, the opponent could be choosing Ken instead of Ryu, making it effectively symmetrical before that first choice. We are looking at where the gameplay is more deeply different. And with gameplay that depends on that difference. So the part of the game is working around how, what information you have or what functionality you have versus what the opponent has. And that's part of where the intrigue and interesting parts of the game shine through, as opposed to just being flavor or a different path towards victory this is no literally you have to work with different tools and different perspectives and our first game really articulates this very well which is pac-man versus Pac-Man Versus is a 2003 isometric multiplayer game developed by Nintendo EAD and published by Namco for the GameCube. Its big notable thing was that it used the Game Boy Advance GameCube link cable to allow one player to have their own separate screen. In this game, three players would control the ghosts from Pac-Man and one player would control Pac-Man. The ghosts share a limited perspective on the TV. They can see a small area around them each. Pac-Man can see the whole screen on the Game Boy Advance. And the Pac-Man player basically plays Pac-Man just like Pac-Man. Structurally, if someone looked at just the GBA screen and you told them it was the original game, they would probably just believe you. Except for the fact that you were short one ghost. Yes, except for that one fact. And then the other players are trying to capture you. If they capture Pac-Man, then they become Pac-Man. So the ghosts must work together but they are not all aligned. It is in their interest to work to their own advantage as opposed to the full team's advantage. But you can only collect points while you are Pac-Man collecting the pellets. That is the basic like dynamics of the game. There are no differences between the ghosts, am I right? No, they're, they're all the all same. Functionally similar, which of course, for people who do actually know Pac-Man, that's a small giveaway because the ghosts they don't move at any different speeds but they have slightly different ai and obviously that's kind of represented in this case by just different people seeing different things behaving different ways uh, guessing different things yeah so different players will have different choices on what they do and how much they work together and things there are a few things that the ghosts are competing for within themselves that they want like characters can get cherries If Pac-Man gets a cherry, it's a small score boost. If a ghost gets it, it zooms out their perspective. Because ghosts have a very limited view of the field and are trying to search for Pac-Man independently and don't know where they are in relation to the whole map either. But Pac-Man knows. Pac-Man always knows. Pac-Man can see everything the ghosts are doing. The Another interesting aspect of Pac-Man Versus is that, yeah, the ghosts' views are limited and drawn in. And because of the very samey design of the pac-man maze 
even though the ghosts share the TV and they can look at what the other ghosts are seeing, it's very hard to figure out where they are just at a glance. So you don't get the cheat information that way very easily. I'm sure as you play more and you get more familiar with the game and the maze, you can start to do that. But at a at an entry level, just being able to see where your fellow ghosts are and what they can see doesn't actually help you quickly eliminate where Pac-Man is or isn't. No, with the exception of after you've played a little bit, players tend to say, I'm going blah. Yeah, yeah. I'm going blah. There, yeah, and then you have the out-of-game communication. Yeah, but without out-of-game communication, you're probably not going to know unless you spot someone like at a power pellet, which are all in the corners of the maps. But then the game, of course, has multiple maps. So once you start playing off the base map, you have to reacquire that knowledge in those landmarks. So the cool dynamics here are that one player has more information than everyone else, and the players that are trying to defeat them on their own terms all have less information. And they must work together because the ghosts can never outrun Pac-Man. So you are never going to catch Pac-Man by yourself. But it is never in your friend's interests to actually help you because they want to catch Pac-Man. And this creates like some interesting tensions that if you don't resolve them as a group, Pac-Man will get every pellet on the board and a huge score lead before someone else can beat him, which is not ideal. It's. I also found it kind of interesting that Players, I, I mean, we only played with relatively fresh people to the game, but players took to flanking very quickly. Like It's very obvious in the game that everyone trailing in a straight single file line behind Pac-Man isn't going to do anything. So it, the game is very good at just communicating. Yeah, try to go around, try to pincer, try to stop them. And it it's just very obvious from the beginning. And I don't think many games are that clear with how with the kind of like simple strategies of what you want to do as quickly. So I don't disagree with that, but I think that it's impossible to ignore that Pac-Man is so ingrained That's in also very public true. consciousness that yeah. it's not that we learn this tactic from the game, like really neatly demonstrating this is how it's done or anything on that. It's just everyone knows how Pac-Man sort of works. Yeah, and very true. By osmosis. Yeah, you you kind of start to emulate the ghost behavior. When did I die when I played Pac-Man? Yeah, because I think things like the ghosts aren't faster than Pac-Man aren't actually very clear because you often don't see a lot of screen time with Pac-Man. A lot of the actual, like, gameplay is running around a maze without very much information. Although, it's worth noting the pellets in Pac-Man Versus actually provide very interesting information because in normal Pac-Man... It doesn't really matter where you've eaten or where you haven't. In Pac-Man Versus, you're a ghost. You're in, you've been in a pellet area for a while and suddenly you see like, wait, the pellets are gone. And you're like, oh, Pac-Man must have been here. And especially early on in the play, when you see an eaten area, it's like, oh, I have information now. The pellets are very useful information early on when they're not there. And towards the end of the map, the fact that there is an area that still hasn't been eaten is like very useful information and it's really interesting seeing this like very like classic part of pac-man being recontextualized which i guess is why pac-man versus is really interesting because it is the quintessential like what if we made this classic thing multiplayer and recontextualizing this very well established idea and concept and i guess thinking of like putting players in like well-established concepts let's look at dead by daylight
Dead by Daylight is an asymmetric survival horror game developed by Behavior Interactive. Dead by Daylight was released in 2016 and was at launch, not especially well regarded is my impression, but over time has become fairly popular and increasingly has more and more tie-ins with like popular horror franchises. Like recently we got the Demigorgon from Stranger Things even, which it's a very interesting arc for a game going from like very little to like being a major tie-in promotion for cult horror stuff. Anyway, you play as either the monster or killer in a first-person perspective, or you play as the survivors or victims in a third-person perspective. And it's trying to emulate that classic sort of horror thriller sort of setup where you're playing a group of characters who have to escape. Unlike Pac-Man Versus, it is a binary, the victims win, the killer wins. There is no like single player hunting for their own score, right? Yep. And each individual survivor slash victim has their own win-lose state, as in players A, B, and C could all die, but D could actually escape and... Yeah, and that's fine as far as the game's concerned. One person survived the horror movie, which is, yeah, you know, typical. If one person survives, does that count as a win for the survivors or is it a win for just the survivor? Just the survivor is considered to... I mean, there isn't necessarily a, like, oh, you win screen. It's very much a, well, I didn't get away, did I? You know, it's it, regardless of what the game may say, the feeling of, oh, I killed three out of four of them, eh, or, uh, yeah, I got away. None of my friends did, but I got away. So I always see it in that kind of terms. I think the game considers the survivor to have won, and I think the killer just gets a tally of how many they killed. Though what's interesting about Dead by Daylight is that, unlike Pac-Man Versus, where for the most part, the verbs are pretty similar amongst the Pac-Man and the ghosts, other than who can kill who at what time. Dead by Daylight, you got a lot of different verbs for each team each type the one killer plays from first person perspective they can what is it they well they have of course the ability to attack they have the ability to put a wounded person on a hook they can see sound i believe right yeah which is less of an active verb and more of a passive thing that's true if the if the survivors make too much sound by being careless by failing skill checks if the if the monster or the killer is close enough nearby they get they're actively just pinged for it sorry passively just pinged for it what other core verbs does the killer have oh they have a special power usually of course depending on the type of monster slash killer that they are yes uh, there's a number so we're not going to bother going into like specifics here but it's like three broad categories like trapper stalker and killer or something right yeah uh, as you would expect it has a lot to do with mobility in a lot of cases whether it's restricting or gaining mobility because it's all about running away the killer is much 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 more powerful already than the survivors i think we should also briefly talk about the hook thing so the killer doesn't actively kill the survivors their goal is to wound them and each survivor takes two hits before going kind of like prone um slash vulnerable they have one healthy state and then one slightly wounded state and then they're just down and then the cat in that state, the killer can pick them up and carry them to one of various hook receptacles, altars kind of things. And they're actually kind of presenting them to this eldritch god thing, right? Like, that, that's what that is. And then that god takes a sacrifice and the character is dead. 
yeah so uh there's still an opportunity once a, a player has been like put on a hook offered up for sacrifice to to not escape but to delay their sacrifice so that someone else another survivor can come and try to free them and that is like where some of these dynamics in because the killer by using the hook can lure other players to be caught like players want to try and save each other i guess we talk about the player verbs now so the player's goal is to trigger x amount of generators is it always like the same number or can it vary i am not 100 percent sure about that okay so x amount x amount of um generators it takes a time to like activate the generator players can work together to do it quicker but it makes more noise right players can work together to do it quicker however after a certain amount of time interacting with the generator of like trying to crank it, you have to pass a skill check where there is a circle that comes up and a marker that goes around the circle and you have to stop that marker in specific spots around the circle. It's just a very generic mini game skill check. More people means that more people have to attempt that skill check and that's not necessarily better or worse, but failing the skill check makes the generator kind of sputter and explode and cause a large burst of sound that the killer can then see. So you're incentivized by working together because that gets it done quicker before anyone gets caught. But if you get it wrong, then the killer can potentially knock out two people, making it very hard to get rescued. Uh, Other verbs that survivors have is run versus um, sneak. So it's a smaller sound radius, but running makes sound. If you are being tracked, then you want to be able to find enough distance to be able to slow down and sneak so that you can get away. They also have access to hiding in like lockers and things. Very alien isolation style, if anyone is familiar with that. Because when they're in there, of course, they have a more limited perspective. They look through the locker door, right? That's right. And if the killer knows that someone is in there, they can just rip open the locker and grab them and they're immediately prone, I believe. I don't think they get a chance to run in that situation. And the survivors can also knock down objects to force the killer to remove them. So there are multiple places around the map where you can pass through an area, hit a button, and pull an obstacle down. If the killer is in the space where the obstacle is going to fall, they get stunned for a brief period. And from then onwards, that is still an obstacle for the killer. So, the, so for example, you run through a small gap and then you pull a pallet down and it falls vertically, uh, sorry, diagonally across the space. The killer can no longer walk through it. If the killer was there, it gets stunned. But in the future, survivors can like slide over the pallet, whereas the killer can't. They have to go around complete. So there is a one-use mechanic tied to it. You want to stun because that buys you the most amount of time. But even once that has been depleted, you can still use it to be a shortcut that the killer has to work around. And this is important because the killer moves faster than the survivors in all cases. So you need obstacles and you need to be able to jump through windows, which the killer can't jump through. And you need to be able to slide across, yeah, obstacles and stuff like that to get away. The survivors have one sensory aspect. Is it a heartbeat? Yes, that's right. I think, yeah, where they know when the killer is nearby based on some audio yes. feedback. So the killer can't like sneak up on you completely unaware. And that the killer isn't meant to be sneaky. The killer is meant to be a terrifying horror movie presence. They are like a classic slasher movie, like in your face kind of character. They are not the the subtly horror, um, always in the shadows, never knowing whether it was really them or just your mind. So at its core, Dead by Daylight is a cops and robbers game where there is a chance for you to free your fellow robbers slash survivors. But on top of that, you have 
have the escape aspect where you have to work together. It's not just running out of time limit. It's not passive. You have active conditions on the map to fulfill in order to be able to get an escape going. Get those X generators, which disables some electric fence. The theming's a bit weird on that, I guess, but... Yeah. <laughs> Survivors are also able to attempt to patch each other up. I don't recall if that requires an item or something, but that's also a skill check. And you can fail that the same way that you can fail the generator skill check. And that causes one of the, the, the person being patched up to yelp out, which causes the uh, killer to be able to see you. And so there's this interesting dynamic, a little like Pac-Man verse, where players want to work together. And unlike verse, it's like it is in everyone's interest to work together. But the risk of working together is that the killer might find all of you. And even if they can't to search all of you, the chance of getting one person is much higher than if it was each person acting independently. I found an observation of this game. I don't have almost any playtime with it. But in observation, there are often moments where players have to just kind of decide, ah, it's not worth going for them. We can't save them. No, it's cut and run, cut and run. You know, like it, it causes a few of those moments because... That tension is there. You're, it's a tense situation where the killer's so much more powerful. There's nothing you can do to stop them for the most part. They are faster than you. You have to rely on sneakiness, but your objectives are so obvious to them. So if you get tunnel visioned into doing something like trying to save a friend, that can end a run for you. And I think it's a really strong success to the game that this mirrors horror games so well. There is some sacrifices that have to be made. Not everyone's going to get out alive. When someone dies, I think that brings up the tension in what I observed. Like people do feel that moment a lot like horror games and games try and emulate horror a lot. But I think this is really succeeding at something very elemental about a lot of the slasher sort of horror. I think another passive observation thing that survivors have is that they can see when someone has been hooked up. Isn't that a sound-based cue? But anyway, yes, there is a way for them to know that there's a hooked member. The hooked survivor just starts screaming, and I suspect you can see that across the entire play area. Oh, sorry, hear that across the entire play area. So incentivizes you to go and get them because the game wants you to go in and try and try. Yeah, is there anything else of note to say about Dead by Daylight? Less to do with the AC symmetry part but when a survivor is either being carried or being put uh once they've been put on the hook to tie into the feeling of tension the survivor has to mash spacebar or, or a button to struggle if you don't struggle on the hook you just get sacrificed almost immediately and this keeps the player active even when they're down so it serves as a way to keep the tension up because you're actively doing something as opposed to sitting back and going, well, I'm screwed, guys, come and help me. I hope I get out. But, you know, like, you just sit back and accept it. Like you, you still have to actively participate. And mashing is never a great mechanic. But in this circumstance, it like it works for this because it's desperate. It's, it's just a lot of like activity, even if it's mostly futile. Struggling doesn't save you at the end of the day, but it can buy you time. And it's draining. Like, that's very yeah, interesting. Like, it is It is tiring to just keep mashing. And while maybe not great game design in a raw mechanical sense, it is, like, great in terms of mechanical emoting. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Day by Daylight is very intense. Something that's a lot more, like, pleasant would be Crawl. Brawl is a 2017 brawler indie game by Australian developer Powerhoof. It features up to four players in local multiplayer. 
that advance through randomly generated dungeons. There are two types of player in this. You have the hero and ghosts. The hero's goal is to progress through the dungeon, get to level 10, and open a portal to the boss monster. The other players are ghosts. Their goal is to kill the player. If they kill the, oh, sorry, they kill the hero. If they kill the hero, they become the hero, and they get to start their own journey to level 10 and to fight the boss monster. Whoever kills the boss monster is the winner. If you can stop the hero getting to the boss monster, then the hero loses, but the game doesn't explicitly say that the ghosts won per se. Yeah, there is really only one possible winner, and it's just the hero. And as far as the ghosts are concerned, they're trying to make that not happen. But it's one of those situations where, I don't know, when I play it, it's very much... I want to be as much of a nuisance as possible. So I have my own like implicit win condition. I don't know if everyone feels that way, but that's how it is for me. Yeah, and I think um, so. there's a lot of things that go on here. There's customization all abound in a way that doesn't get in the way I find, which I find very impressive. So basically, at the start of a match, you pick your ghost type, which chooses what three kinds of monsters you can turn into. In the dungeon map, there are... Pent- um, pentagons, not pentagons, pentagrams. Pentagrams, yeah. I know my occult. There are, there are pentagrams here and there. You can use a pentagram to summon a monster which you control that has various abilities that are more or less like what a monster would have in a sort of action dungeon crawler roguelike sort of thing. You are trying to kill the hero with these, of course. But at the end of every floor, you can level up your monsters. And you get points to level up your monsters in proportion to how many level ups heroes had gotten over the course of that floor because in a dungeon crawler the monsters scale with the hero and it's a really neat twist because if some if a single hero let's say on the first floor got from level one to level eight then everyone gets a huge boost and will likely kill the hero very soon but if like that didn't happen and no one really got a lot of levels then there's less overall wrath that's gained and things stay a bit more mellow perhaps ghosts can make more than monsters they can possess traps and control them firing fire or bullets or even just like throwing like the odd barrel or something at someone. Sometimes you're a spike on the floor that can move in one direction or in one axis. And even that is pressure. So rooms are small in crawl. Rooms are small in crawl. And sometimes there are points when you might not feel you have a lot to do. And the game really capitalizes on this downtime. There is a resource called ectoplasm that um, appears on the screen somewhat randomly. Ghosts can collect that. If they collect enough of it, they can deploy a slime. Slimes aren't great monsters, but they are monsters. And it's an extra little resource of you being able to annoy a player. You can possess your slimes as well. But what's interesting about this is that whenever a room has monsters, the doors lock. So if you find a room with really good traps, let's say, you might deliberately, even though the room doesn't have any monsters in it anymore, just drop a slime in there when the hero enters it. And force the doors to be locked so that the hero has to deal with an encounter surrounded by traps. I guess we should say that the hero is the only character that can control where the action is happening. So the hero chooses to go into a new room. The ghost cannot be in rooms that the hero is not in. This is a full knowledge game, meaning that both hero and spirits, ghosts, have access to all the information at the same time some of it has to be remembered so you know there might be differences in player there but as far as like presenting information 
everyone sees everything at the same time. There isn't really a lot of like hidden information sneaking out as the prize here and there. This is a local multiplayer single screen game. Yeah. So Pac-Man Versus is also local multiplayer, but it is a multi-screen game. And Dead by Daylight is just multiple different clients and multiple different perspectives. So Dead by Daylight has no shared information. Pac-Man Versus has one team with shared information, one team with their own information. Crawl is same information all around. So there's lots of cool dynamics about, like, again, players need to work together, like a lot of this, but someone wants to get the killing blow themselves. The killing blow is the important one. The killing blow is the only one that really matters. Yep. Because... It is in your interest to be the hero. It is in your interest to make sure that when you are the hero, everything will be fine. So making sure that like before you get the final hit, that maybe your friends have already been killed by the hero, possibly. There's a lot of ways to be like very sneaky and subtle about this stuff. The play area in general, as I said before, is pretty small. So mobility helps. You know, oftentimes monster trade-offs are uh, slightly chunkier, do a little bit more damage, but slower. Um, that honestly still kind of works because the hero has to come to you, has to kill you at some point. So there's a lot of like jousting kind of chicken in that regard. You you know you're both kind of vulnerable to each other because the, the hero damage is relatively persistent across rooms. They have to keep into account that their life is finite and can run out. Monsters want the most out of, sorry, ghosts want the most out of every monster incarnation, every pentagram they get. So there is that kind of weird resource management in mind as well. Yeah, and it's worth noting as well that whenever Kira kills a monster, they get not just experience points to level up with, but they also get gold. And that's where the other sort of economy comes in, which is the shop, which is buying things, upgrading, customizing. Like any good sort of modern rogue light, there are lots of different things you can acquire and with playing more you can unlock more different things what i find really cool about the shopping sequence which had great potential to be really awful for the ghosts it could have been just such a hero goes in does their thing it's not interesting the ectoplasm really shines a bright light here which is ghosts can collect this while the hero is shopping so the longer the hero spends like agonizing over do they want the sword of plus one or the spear of plus one goes to requiring more and more resources. It's not an overwhelming advantage. You would have to be agonizing for a long time for a ghost to be able to summon one full entire extra monster. But knowing that the time you take is contributing to potentially your loss does pressure the hero to make the choice quicker. And I think that pressure to make them choose quickly is huge because most players probably know what they really want. It's just that people like to think about things. And by just encouraging them to make that decision more quickly just keeps the game smooth while still having the fun of creating fun builds. Which I think, it's fun. Like, it's great to be able to make distinct builds. Like, at the start, everyone's heroes are very similar and everyone's monsters are fairly similar. But by the end, everyone, like, has created a strong identity in the playthrough. Which I think is really, really cool. Like, in Pac-Man Versus and Dead by Daylight, you are just you. Yeah, you're just very static. Like, yeah, you may have a strategy that you like, but there's nothing that makes you specifically you. By the end of Crawl, though, like, I played through a lot of it on Friday a few days ago. I would tend towards getting, like, cool long-range abilities and spears, and someone else would tend to focus towards shields, and we all would create these distinct identities, what monster we raised up. It's a fun sense of self-expression, which I don't need to value super highly, but... For a frenetic party game like this, it really helps. Because there's not, like, each session takes, let's say, 20 minutes. Between 20 and 30 minutes, yeah. 
So you don't have to be super invested in it. You can just experiment with it and play with it, see what works. And hey, if it doesn't pan out, you have the next game. I mean, 30 minutes is still a long time. Like it's long enough that you want to put your mark on it, but it's not long enough that you could, you feel like you've committed badly by doing something. You're not going to spend two days agonizing over whether you buy something off an MMO auction house because it's not going to last that long. So one of the small issues in regards to the asymmetry in this multiplayer though is it does leave room for um lame duck situations the last game i played someone hadn't managed to kill the hero for 90 percent of the play so when they finally became the hero they were level one because each player raises their own hero independently but they were the hero while i was um a fully raised evil dark ninja and my other friend was like a full octopus eldritch nightmare and they were level one with no abilities no nothing and while they got a little bit further than i expected with that there was not any serious chance they could become level 10 again and so there's sort of a resignation at some point where like i cannot be the hero that wins this but maybe i can stop them kingmaker yeah kingmaker which is fine but it's it's fine if it happens every once in a while but if if for if for whatever reason you don't resonate with the game and that's all the experience you get out of it, it gets very frustrating. So it's like one of the bigger concerns with Brawl. But in general, that doesn't really happen. In general, you get a sort of spread where someone takes an early lead, but then it sort of starts balancing out and evening out. Because the advantage is, is that the longer you are not the hero, the more wrath you collect. Because you collect wrath, which levels up your monsters, but every time a hero levels up, that is not you. So if you were never the hero, you will have the most powerful monsters most often. And therefore get the chance to be a hero. But also that means that when you're gone, the person who was the biggest threat to the hero is now no longer there. Because you were the biggest threat to the hero and now you are the hero. So there's a bit of clever internal balancing that I don't think always works out, but it's definitely... An interesting bit of like self-balancing that goes on. From the perspective of the hero, the whoever is the hero at the moment, I think the game is just really good at applying pressure. Because honestly, the actions available to you as a ghost are fairly simplistic. They're very straightforward options. It's, you know, damage or move a trap or activate a trap. But it's the combination of all of these things from three different sources. So three people managing something very simple applies quite a great deal of complicated pressure to a single person. Especially if you can like drop slimes and add extra sources of AI into the mix. And it's a very visually noisy game. Like a lot is going on. Keeping track of all that is very hard for everyone in a way that I think helps the game. Like I think if it was really easy to read everything, it would be kind of too simplistic. I think that the bombast of like everything like escalating and being over the top really helps the hero be sufficiently stressed that they can make mistakes because the game is less fun if the hero is always making perfect dodges. Like, we need the hero to make mistakes for the game to be fun. The hero starts with a very simple toolkit of attack, a three-hit combo, basically, and dodge. They can replace the dodge with a super move of some kind, but that dodge is a pretty effective dodge. It has a small cooldown, but like it'll get you out of a lot of bad situations for a while. If the hero is on point and actually can properly decipher all the information they're being thrown at that's thrown at them, they can get through uh, quite a lot. But I think, do we have anything more to say about Crawl? No, I think that's it. Well then, let's move ourselves away from the digital space and look more at a 
board game type situation or a physical game situation at Werewolf. Werewolf, also known as Mafia, also known as Witch Hunt, also known as any number of things, is a social deduction game that is attributed to Dmitry Davidoff in 1986, and it models a conflict between two groups, usually an informed minority, as it describes it, so either witches, werewolves, gangsters, and then an uninformed majority being the villagers, the public, or what have you. Usually the game is structured so that every day, the publicly everyone votes on someone to kill or remove from the game in whatever metaphor the game chooses to use and at night the smaller minority get to vote between someone to kill in secret that is the very simple structure there are lots of different variants and you and i both have experience with very different variants very very different variants I'm experienced with a needlessly complex forum version of this, where everyone has a distinct and interesting role. And your experience is? In the one night tabletop variant of this, where there is actually only one day, but there's more information spread out through, it, through the game. And there's a very small time frame of opportunity for discussion. So I'm not at all experienced that version. So nearly all versions of Werewolf have a few like roles that tend to be in things like there's a priest type character where they get to learn who is good and who is evil at a very slow pace. Does that exist in one night? Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, it's a seer. And at the beginning of the game slash round, they get to effectively look at one person's role. Okay. So they just get a little bit of headset information. Yeah. In that version. And usually in other versions, every night they would pick someone to check. That's right. And they would find out about them. And they don't know the role in most cases, they just know alignment. Because often within these things, there are lots of roles both on the smaller minority side and the larger majority side. And the foreign version gives everyone a role and has multiple sub-factions even, like the lovers if everyone else dies. Except the lovers, even if they're on different sides, the lovers win and things which are not in most live versions of these games. Yeah. So one of the key differences between the two versions that we're talking about is the time frame. A one-night tabletop variant lasts for about 10 minutes, maybe 15 if you include the setup time. And the forum version is probably going to be about a week at least. Yep. And there's all in between as well. Werewolf is played often as kind of a dinner party kind of thing. So it lasts maybe the length of a night out with drinks and food. The thing with the longer variants is that you don't spend all your time playing it. You know, on the forum version, you dedicate an amount of time every day to like interacting on the forum, trying to suss out information, trying to figure out identities and roles to be able to decide, okay, by this actual day, we will make this vote. And the interesting like asymmetric components are not just that you have the two teams that are of different sizes and different goals, because the goals are actually pretty similar. They want to kill everyone else. That's the goal. But what is the asymmetric component is that people have different amounts of information. And in a game that is basically all about information, that is huge. So in the forum versions, a lot of the roles to make people have something to do are like, you've got the bishop, they can check every night who is good and who is evil. The acolyte knows who the bishop is. In any other game, that would be like a very boring, uninteresting power. But in an information game, 
It means that they know someone they can trust. And by knowing someone they can trust, that means that they have a very interesting pool of information that is different to the information the priest has to some extent, because they are safe from being exposed, I guess. Because if an acolyte dies, it's not a huge problem. An acolyte can be like, no, I am very confident. I, they can pretend to be the bishop even to try and attract attention away from the real bishop and such. Giving up information is very dangerous as well, because if an acolyte just outright says, I know X is the bishop, and therefore we should believe them. Okay, cool. You might have gotten an advantage in the day, but then by the time night rolls around, the evil, the werewolves, the, the mafia, they're just going to kill the bishop. And that's one of the most important roles in this game, because they are the only source that can just get straight up, clear, direct, and useful information. Yeah, so the bishop has to simultaneously survive by not letting people know who they are because if they're dead they can't do their their role and still put the information they uh, obtained out there and all the different roles have similar things they get information they want to make sure that it gets out there somehow but they can't be too explicit about it because then it can be abused and so yeah and information creates that disparity like now that i have this information i can make these informed choices i can spread this level of information around safely or unsafely there's also an aspect of why is person a championing this do they actually know something? Did something someone else say confirm something for them and therefore they have this information? So when you look at it that way, their actions are part of the information as well because why is someone saying something? And then you get into very messy situations of how do I communicate something without giving too much away? Or how do I communicate something and pretend as if I know what I'm saying? And... Yeah, that's a very interesting like one-way deception information asymmetry. And I think this is why the forum game versions tend to have a much greater version of asymmetry in them. Because since there's usually less chance to interact with everyone, everyone needs to have their discussion, I guess, tainted with their asymmetric bias. If you don't have something that makes you stand out, then it's hard to read into the game well. If everyone's just a play, if most people are just playing villagers with nothing to really base anything on. So it gives a starting point for suspicions. It gives a starting point for reading deeper into things. And because in forum versions, you can always check up on what someone said. Yeah, because it's all logged. It can be much more intense and like hard read sort of version, which can make it a bit unpleasant in the wrong group. Since you don't have that constant interaction to latch onto, you need to be able to have things to look back on and create information from. Whereas people are just like, if you played werewolf with me in real life, you would just know I'm a werewolf because I have no poker face <laughs> at all. <laughs> I, I was going to mention as well, a big contrast to this is, let's say, the dinner party version of werewolf. It, in some ways, that version feels like an election because there will be champions on either side trying to convince the uninformed majority to, to make the public vote that in their favor. Because the werewolf slash mafia can convince the group of villagers to just kill an innocent villager and make their work easier for them. And that is their goal, because if they manage to convince them to kill a villager, that is usually a double kill for them. Like, they can get two in one night. That's right. And, and a kill has to happen, right? Yes, a kill must happen. Um, in a lot of forum versions, to make that simpler, they tend to have, like, if there is no clear majority, this character can just choose. Like, the judge can just choose, or something like that. 
in a physical version, I guess that it's just like the day will not end until there is a clear majority or what happens? Well, there's a moderator, so I, I assume you can house rule it. Uh, so here's the complicated part about Werewolf. There's so much information going around with so much role hidden things going around. If you play the dinner party version, there's often just a moderator. I think in some forum versions, there's also just a moderator, right? There's usually a moderator for everything because someone... Someone has to know everything to keep everyone in line. Yeah, the moderator has to like check, okay, what are all the witches voting for? What are all the werewolves voting for? Okay. And they're the person that tells you, I want to check on this person, then they tell you back, yep, their alignment is this. There must be a moderator for all versions of this game. Not the one night tabletop version. Oh yes, so I'm interested actually in that. How does, because obviously you don't kill everyone in one night. No, there is only one night, so you get one kill. The werewolves survive if they don't die. Okay, so there is... So if any single werewolf dies, that is their loss. Correct. Okay, so basically it's all about the village, like what the villagers choose in that one day. Yeah, and so the interesting part of that is that the asymmetry is still there as strong as ever because different roles mean that different information is passed out at the beginning of the round. Uh, and this is done via all players closing their eyes and then the relevant roles opening their eyes and looking at cards and like doing things. But then there is no information reduction in the game. A key factor of the longer versions, like the, the week-long forum versions, is information gets reduced. The information pool gets reduced. There are less players as time goes on, which makes deductions easier for the most part in general as time goes on. There isn't this factor in the one-night version because you have 10 minutes and then everyone has to just throw it out there and debate and convince people to be on their side. Once you get a group that is competent in the game, there are a lot of weird things you can do, like making a very false claim early on because first mover advantage is very much a thing. If you say something early on and you are like close enough to being right, that's very powerful. People start to believe you. But if you just throw something out there and you're completely off base and people can corroborate that you're completely off base, you might have just exposed yourself. So yeah, there's a lot of like weird kind of dynamics back and forth that way. Very risky with high reward, depending on how much information you have, how much information you're willing to give up. If you paint too much of a target on yourself and people decide to kill you, but you were actually a villager trying to pull someone out and like make them trip up, then you've you've doomed your entire village because you let you gave werewolves the perfect cover. And with games like this, there's also a very interesting level of if you play in the same groups anyway, a very interesting level of like meta gameplay that happens. Players earn levels of trust, respect, cleverness, and so if you have demonstrated that you make good reads, often people are just going to tend towards agreeing with you. And the metas for these things can get very confusing. Like, very difficult if you're not in them for a long time, because how players have decided that, oh, this is the best move to make if you're X kind of thing. Because often groups will make different choices as to what the correct plays are. Yeah, the metasys can get very interesting based on both, like, the social factors of who is trusted and who is not trusted. Like, some people just get unlucky and they always get werewolf cards and... Everyone's just like, well, Blue's the werewolf, because Blue is always the werewolf. Yeah, I, I'm also the kind of player who always seems the evil, even when I'm not. That's because you think too much. Yes. So, yeah, the, the symptom of that would be holding your own counsel and doing a lot of like evaluation of what other people have said, which means that you're not contributing to a conversation, which makes it look like you're overanalyzing your options because you have more information. So a, a common pitfall of games with information asymmetry is that the person with more information takes more time to process it. And this asymmetry can lead to it being less engaging for certain players who have less to do. Because thanks to the nature of werewolves specifically, there are players who just like, they've got nothing special going on. They're just a normal person. 
which makes the time when they are the bishop more exciting but also it, it can make players feel like they don't have anything to really contribute which is one of the pitfalls potentially to asymmetry in certain contexts like if players are in uninteresting roles they feel like it's boring the fact it's a social game and one night werewolf because it's so short has a huge advantage there and even if you're not the interesting person it's 10 minutes at most kind of thing and there's a lot of intrigue the actual like act of trying to deduce things from everyone is much more interesting than reading text logs you make your own games of like watching people's reactions <laughs> as opposed to thinking about information you have and it's also worth saying like the dinner party version like the long form version is like werewolf is sort of the secondary thing it helps add a bit of structure to an evening where people maybe don't know everyone and don't like know how to start conversations like this gives you an excuse to talk to everyone it's like makes it very easy and that is a very different discussion that maybe we should put on a table at some point and mm -hmm, have like maybe. games of secondary social activities but yeah that's a lot of werewolf that is a lot of werewolf i think maybe we should look onto our final game which brings us back to the digital realm spy party is a competitive multiplayer game about a spy hiding in plain sight at a fancy cocktail party and a sniper outside the party with one bullet sounds simple right let's go deeper Spy Party is an indie video game developed by Chris Hecker. Um, it was first shown off at the Experimental Gameplay Workshop at the 2009 Game Developers Conference and is currently in early access on Steam with a projected release um, in about two years' time. It's had a story development cycle. It's gone through multiple iterations and has completely rebuilt itself from the ground up a number of times, but the core gameplay is extremely compelling and has persisted throughout all of these versions of the game. And it's a very cool, simple concept. It is one player is a sniper and one player is the spy. The spy has a list of goals that are known to both the spy and the sniper. The spy's goal is to do all these things without drawing attention to themselves. The room is filled with many NPCs. And I believe the sniper knows some information, like one of the NPCs is the ambassador. And one of the spy's goals might be put a bug on the ambassador. But the sniper has some things they must observe. Well, the sniper has a lot of things they must observe because... That's true. There are a lot of goals that the spy has to accomplish and within a time limit. The spy can extend the time limit by looking at their watch twice. And they have to do that, obviously, without being noticed. It's one of the tells that the sniper is looking for. You may have noticed that we've talked about this in terms of just the spy and the sniper... But our discussion is about few versus many. In this case, the many is the NPCs. There are many AI NPCs, and it is up to the player to try and pretend to be an NPC, which I think is an extremely good idea. And there are a number of games that have tried this before. Mm, like the Assassin's Creed multiplayer actually is surprisingly like this and is really interesting. It's not as interesting as Spy Party, I think. But it's certainly like a distinct take on this. It's a it's always a very tricky balance to get making NPCs because NPCs are always going to move in a NPC like fashion. Anyone who's played video games knows roughly what I'm talking about here. They either move with extreme purpose and they're doing exactly one thing, or they kind of just waffle around a bit. Because Spy Party is set normally in a kind of like dinner party kind of setting, the waffling kind of just works. I yeah. It looks really natural. It's one of the most natural implementations of NPCs I've seen in like a small scale thing. You just wander around some of the things that you would write off as being just kind of weird work. Like an NPC just wanders off and just stands and looks into the distance. But in the distance is a beautiful view of the city or a painting or 
you know, a famous person that they want to interact with but don't have the confidence for, maybe. And it's like, so easy to just project that onto this NPC that's obviously just standing there. And it's because the NPCs have lots of different actions they can do, like looking at statues, ordering drinks. There are lots of ways in which you can very easily, like, match them. And as a spy, like, you can sort of, if there's a conversation huddle of people, it telegraphs, okay, this is how you are in the conversation. And you can enter the conversation, like, banter with people. Not actually talking, but, like, doing the emoting and moving as if you are talking with them. So it's still very easy to overstep yourself and make yourself look like a human player and therefore the spy because you can move very frequently like you can just do thing do thing do thing and then the sniper will be like oh yep that's you obviously but if you just take your time then you waffle but there's also the balance of not taking too much time because if you're like you've been looking at that statue for like a full minute now i'm not convinced it's also worth noting that you can see the beam of light from the sniper so that the player always has a good idea of where the sniper is looking and knows when to sneak in their chance of to look at the watch but the cool thing about looking at the watch to extend the time limit for your mission is that if you trigger it and the time extends then the sniper knows it's someone i wasn't looking at so it's a great tell the sniper can know oh everyone i was looking at here isn't someone i was targeting and to aid that, the sniper can then, as opposed to highlight, low light certain NPCs, certain like models that they're looking at. But the double trick is, is that they can't be 100% sure. They could have just not noticed it. That's right. So this great cat and mouse process of elimination game for the sniper. And then on the spy side, it's just, I just need to do this thing and not get noticed. If you haven't seen it, it's... Very compelling to watch. I, I've read about this game for years and years and years, but never actually watched it. I had the impression that it might not be very fun to watch, but it's very easy to grasp and information is displayed very clearly. It's very compelling to watch, especially when you have the two players sort of bantering with each other as they play it. Yeah, this game is actually much more fun if you have the other person on comms and just, no, I'm not, uh, or uh, the sniper going, yeah, I see you at the uh, at the at the bar, and the other guy. No, I'm not at the bar at all. And hey, someone's probably lying there. But or they're telling the truth. Or they hope is you just be a lie. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The classic double bluff. I'm just gonna walk over and get myself a martini. <laughs> it's like that means absolutely nothing, but it it just adds that extra dimension of intrigue. <laughs> yeah, and it really excels at giving that spy fantasy. You do if you're being really clever when you like sneak in your glance at the watch when you covertly plant the bug on the ambassador and things. I don't think there's much more to say about Spy Party, is there? I mean, there are a couple of things. Go ahead. So one of the things that can happen is you get very familiar with what the objectives are slash look like. There are some things that only the spy does that no other NPC will ever do. Mm, so the spy can look at watches, they can plant the bugs, and those are different visual cues. But like even things like, you know, sometimes NPCs pull books off of shelves, but I think there is a specific objective where you're moving a microfilm and therefore you put the book back in a different place. Like apparently some NPCs, uh, sorry, NPCs just don't do that. Um, so if you actually catch that happening, that's a very straightaway tell. So that's tells to most of the spy goals. There's meeting with the other agent. You say a phrase, I believe it's banana bread. Banana bread, yeah. Yeah, and like the sniper hears that very clearly. They know it happened, and there's a visual cue that usually goes with it too. But if you weren't looking in the right spot, you're just out of luck. Except not, because you know who you were looking at, wasn't it? So, eh. You always gain some information when you see these things, or don't see these things, because you know it wasn't what you were looking at. 
And that's where highlight low light comes into play. Highlight people that have been in um, suspicious situations and then if they keep coming up in suspicious situations or they're never there when something happened and you know you know something has happened then the chances of them being it go up and i think at the end of the day the really cool thing is that most games end on a guess yes it's usually like a guess between one or two people i watch a lot of streams in prep for this and usually when people make the shot because i should we should say the sniper has a single shot they yes have, only, they one only have one chance one shot and that's it the game ends when they fire that shot even if they miss everyone like they can hit the wall and it's still and then the wall was the spy, the ultimate trick. No. <laughs> the room was the spy. <laughs> but more seriously, um, most people, when they see that screen, they're like, oh, I knew it was you. It was between this person and that person. Yeah, yeah. That was my second guess. There are very few games where I see people end and be like, I had no clue it was that person. That was not my guess at all. One of the nice things is that this game always seems to end with everyone being pretty happy about things maybe with different people it would be different and people who are likely to record themselves playing these things are more likely to be more positive and more like fun to watch per se but whether it's like they take an early gamble on and it's like well that was a bad mistake or they succeed on a lucky like minute one gamble and it's like oh well that's me victorious yeah it's not a game where you supposed where you should be super serious because if you were super serious you would always take the maximum amount of time you had to be as sure as possible but that's not fun except you can't take the maximum amount of time because the spy might accomplish all their goals but maximum time could be you know you tell yourself all right i will take the shot when they're at like one objective away because you know that sometimes you know that sometimes do you know that because sometimes you just know when certain things have happened like the banana bread oh that's right so depending on the missions list and we should say like the mission list has like 10 or there are like 10 or 20 different potential missions but at the start of each game x amount are selected and the higher the difficulty you play on the more objectives the spy has basically so on beginner i believe it's four and then it gets increasingly higher as you progress higher which as it gets more difficult it, it makes things more difficult and the sniper has to be remembering more things I have to be noticing and the spy has more situations that could be giving away the tell. Yeah. I really like that. It gets harder for both sides and it gets harder in like, yeah, this very interesting way because you sort of think initially the spy has more things to do. Therefore it's more difficult for the spy, but because the game is all about observation, having to keep track of more things to notice is a real burden on the sniper, I imagine. Yeah, especially if there, because not all objectives are loud, some objectives are quiet, and if you just don't notice it happening, you might just keep watching for the wrong thing. Because in your head, you go, okay, I'm watching for these number of objectives, and maybe you just miss them. And what's cool, a bit like Werewolf, is you get like player meta, like, you know, if I'm playing against you, and, you know, I might tend to be doing the statue as the first, or statue swapping as the first or second objective I do. So you get trained to like notice that from me. And so there's an aspect of having to play against your own type as well. Yeah, the sniper always watches for this objective first. So I'll go to the other side of the room and do this out. Like any good fighting game, people have tells. And it's about not only acting like an NPC, but trying to also like not act like your same way of acting like an NPC. I, I think one of my favorite meta things that emerge is... Maybe not even meta. One of my favorite gameplay elements of Spy Party is I've seen some players try to frame an NPC. Because you can see where the sniper is looking, you try to make it so that you only accomplish objectives that are loud when that person, when that NPC is in sight. Oh, uh, sorry, out of sight or in sight or whatever. That's yeah. so good. 
So you mark someone to frame at the beginning of the game, and then you watch them as the spy to make sure that you're getting them like implicated. I think that's really that cool. is so good. Yeah, and I think that's the summary of Spy Party. It's so good. <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's really neat. It's very neat. It's a super super cool concept. It's very neat. Yeah, uh, I think that's all I have to say about. Yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's all we have to say about it. So awesome. we'll move into our closing thoughts. And that basically wraps up all that we have to talk about from today. So we went through Pac-Man versus, which is very, you know, simple one versus three, where the three have a lot less information than the one, and they're all trying to work together, but each want to be the one that wins. If you're interested in trying Pac-Man versus, you don't actually need to use the traditional hardware of the GameCube and Game Boy Advance link cables and stuff. You can actually get Pac-Man versus on the Namco Arcade on the Switch. You will require uh, two Switches, but totally doable. After Pac-Man Versus, we talked about Dead by Daylight, which is this asymmetric horror game with a traditional slasher film kind of killer and survivors. And the survivors all have to do skill checks to try to escape the place. It's it's cops and robbers, but with a bit more complication on top of it, where the, the, the robbers are actually actively trying to get out. And moving on from that, we went into Crawl, this indie dungeon crawler where there are ghosts that are trying to kill a hero and the ghosts can either create monsters that they slowly train up to be more powerful or inhabit traps within rooms and try to kill the hero. And if they get a kill, they get to become the hero and, you know, take on their own quest against the dungeon. And then we moved into asymmetry in a more social context, looking at Werewolf, the physical and forum versions of the game, and how asymmetric information is different in a digital context and physical context as well as how players respond to having different amounts of information. And at the end, we finish with Spy Party, which takes the few versus many and makes it into few one versus one pretending to be part of the many, trying to blend into people in asymmetry of deception and information. So that's asymmetry for this month. If there's a system that you want to talk to us about, we'd love to hear from you. You can talk to us on Twitter or on the show at Platinpit. And... For next month, we are going to talk about Game of the Year in a slightly different context. We're going to look at publications and try and guess what they will pick as Game of the Year based on discussions of previous year's games. We'd like to hear your responses, what you think will be Game of the Year. You can list the publication you think would give that game Game of the Year or just what you think the general consensus would be. So for all that, thank you for listening and we'll see you next month.